Father, we look to you this morning with expectancy. You faithfully speak from your word. We're here because we believe that your word is living and active. We set this time aside because we trust that you speak through the preaching of your word. As your spirit gives life to the preacher and to the preached word and to the heart of those who hear. And so I pray this morning that you would strengthen us by your word. Your people and those here this morning who have not yet trusted Christ but are here because they love someone else or they're here because they're intrigued by the word or by you or by the community that's gathered in your name. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come in power and speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. Imagine a family with me. This is an extended family, cousins, aunts, and uncles, and grandparents. And this family lives about 200 years ago. And they long to move across the ocean to a new homeland. Now their desire for their future home across the sea impacts their present home. They plan for this trip. They save. They go without. They're careful and deliberate and thoughtful about what they spend money on. Should we buy this farm? Should we invest this money? And they hold each other accountable for their financial decisions, especially when some in this extended family lose sight of the goal, this future homeland across the sea. There's a gut check as they think together about their finances. Their present spending, their present stewardship is gripped by their future home. That doesn't mean that they don't care at all for their present home. They do. They still labor hard at their jobs. Their children still care about learning in school. They take care of their homes and their farms. They worship God. They long to be good neighbors. They still buy each other birthday gifts. They go on picnics. They enjoy fellowship with one another. Still, though, their longing for their future home across the sea grips them. It persuades them to be purposeful with all they have. It convinces them, this future home, that going without for a season will be worth it when we arrive in our new homeland. Now in Philippians 4, 14 and following, Paul unwraps a sweeping vision of Christian generosity. Paul provides three reasons why Christians should be motivated to give generously toward the advancement of the gospel. And all three reasons boil down to this main purpose. A generous church is gripped by the eternal riches of Christ. We are gripped and convinced and persuaded by these eternal riches in Christ, and that produces within us a generosity that doesn't make sense. The future eternal homeland captures our hearts and it impacts our present lives. Now, if discussions about finances and giving produces guilt in your heart, 
because perhaps you haven't given as faithfully as you should to the work of the gospel. Or if these discussions produce discouragement because your financial position is really modest and you don't really have that much to give. Or if these conversations produce pride because you're kind of happy with how you give. Maybe you give a little bit loudly to the work of the gospel. My prayer is that by the time we're finished this morning, our hearts ache to steward every penny we have for the sake of eternity. Reason number one, give to develop gospel partnerships. Paul calls on the Philippians and calls on us to give to develop gospel partnerships. Verses 14 through 16. You see, in God's kindness, he's given you and me an opportunity to partner with, with gospel work. We can personally invest with the work of the gospel, even if we're not the one sowing and preaching and evangelizing and going. We can still partner with work in the gospel. Now, last week, Paul thanked the Philippians for their generous gift that met a real need in his life. He's under house arrest in Rome, he has no ability to work for himself, so he's reliant upon others to meet his needs for food and for rent. But Paul says that his contentment is not tied to the relief he's experienced from hardship once the Philippian gift arrives. That's not why he's content. He's not content because the hardship has gone away. You know, Paul has learned contentment in seasons of plenty and in seasons of great need. Paul has cultivated a heart that quietly trusts God's leadership and his fatherly heart, whether he has abundance or he has desperate need. Yet though Paul was content before the financial help arrived from Philippi, Paul is still so grateful for their help. Look at verse 14, Philippians chapter 4. Yet, even though I can do all things who through Christ who strengthens me, even though I can pursue contentment in any season, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. The gift delivered by Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome, Paul says, you shared in my trouble. Through that gift, you got underneath the boulder that was over my head and just your very presence embodied in that gift that Epaphroditus delivered, you got underneath that burden with me and your presence just lifted it ever so much. And I'm convinced that you were with me. I felt your presence. I felt your partnership in my great need. Paul's enduring tremendous hardship in Rome. We shouldn't let his joy and contentment undervalue the amount of pressure that he was facing as he waits Caesar's verdict about whether he'll live or die for the gospel. And this isn't the first time the Philippians stood with Paul. Look at verses 15 and 16. And you Philippians, know yourselves that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. The word in verse 14 for share my trouble is the similar word to entered into partnership, share, partner. The Philippians were the only ones in Macedonia who partnered with Paul from the very beginning. 
They labored from the very beginning, from the moment that Paul preached the gospel to them and they began to believe the gospel, they began to partner with Paul. Remember Lydia, the purple cloth dealer. As soon as she comes to faith in Christ, she opens up her home and houses this new fledgling church. And her example becomes the norm for the Philippian church. They're looking for opportunities to partner with Paul for the sake of the gospel. Even in Thessalonica, a three days, hundred mile journey away, the Philippians send support. Even though Paul's only in Thessalonica for three weeks or maybe four the Philippians are still supporting him and probably more than once. Well, we also learn from 1 and 2 Corinthians that the Philippians supported Paul in Corinth as well. When Paul arrives in Corinth, he opens a tent maker shop, his trade that he's learned along the way. And he works as a tent maker throughout the week. And then on the Sabbath day, he goes and preaches the gospel to whoever will listen to him. But this changes when Timothy and Silas arrive from Macedonia. And now Paul occupies himself full-time with preaching the gospel. What happened? Why is he no longer tent-making to support himself in Corinth? Well, it comes because of the financial support that Timothy and Silas deliver from Macedonia. Here's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's explaining himself and his ministry. And he says to the Corinthians, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you in Corinth and in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Timothy and Silas from Macedonia. And only the Philippians in Macedonia supported and partnered with Paul from the very beginning. So I refrained and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. Paul doesn't want to charge non-Christians for the gospel. When he goes into a non-Christian city... He's preaching the gospel free of charge. To do that, though, he either needs to support his own way, which means he's working six days a week and only preaching one day a week, or churches who have already been exposed to the gospel are supporting Paul to preach the gospel in places where it hasn't yet been preached. Therefore, Paul can preach seven days a week. The Philippians have tasted the goodness of God in Philippi. They heard Paul preach the gospel and they became partakers in this message. It's not just Paul's. This is ours. God has made us alive. We've tasted the goodness of God. We've seen the mercy of God in the land of the living and we long for others to know this as well. And so they participated. They fellowshiped. They partook in the work that Paul was doing. But the Philippians are not giving out of their wealth. The Philippians are giving out of great need. Now, there do seem to be wealthy Christians in Philippi. Lydia would be among them. But the churches in Macedonia seem to be overwhelmingly poor. This may be why last week Paul understands their delay. They lacked opportunity, but now they have the opportunity and they've given again. Here's Paul again to the church in Corinth. This time he's writing about the Philippians' support of the church in Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For in a severe test of affliction, there, that is the church in Macedonia, their abundance of joy 
and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Paul is using the Philippian church as an example to the Corinthian church to give to the Jerusalem church. The Philippians were partaking in the gospel work. They were partnering with Paul in the work of the gospel. The Philippians gave what they had, which doesn't seem to be a lot, to the needs of a struggling Jerusalem church laid low by persecution and famine. They looked for opportunities to develop gospel partnerships. They gave to church planting work in Corinth and Thessalonica at least. And they gave to relieve the suffering of Christians in Rome, in Paul's case, and in Jerusalem. Why are they doing this? They're doing this because they've been gripped by the eternal gospel that Paul proclaimed to them. They've tasted God's goodness and they long for others to experience his forgiveness and love. When we take our money and we invest it in gospel ministry, we partner ourselves with the work that's happening. We join ourselves. We invest ourselves alongside gospel work that's happening either in our city or in cities around the world. Giving develops gospel partnerships. So give strategically. Give strategically. We need to be wise stewards of the money that God has given to us, both as individual Christians who need to make decisions about how much we will give and to whom we will give. And as a church family, as we determine how to invest our money for the gospel in our cities and among the nations, we need to think strategically if we're going to partner effectively for the gospel. And so to do this, here's a couple words to help us flesh out strategically. First, plan. To give strategically, we have to plan. One of the enemies to Christian generosity is poor planning. Don't be haphazard in your giving. Be intentional. If you don't make a budget, if you don't have a plan to give in advance, then it probably won't happen. So be intentional. When will you give? Weekly? Monthly? What will you do with your year-end bonus if you expect it every December? And what about your will? Does gospel partnership have a role in your estate planning? How can you keep eternity in view as you think about a plan for giving? Secondly, focus. Focus. Separate the best from the good. If you're going to be strategic, what will have the greatest eternal impact? Here's John Piper. We care, meaning the church cares, about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. Now this should show up in our giving. We still meet needs for food and clothing and shelter and relief. But if we believe that a person's greatest need is to be reconciled to God, if we believe that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, if we believe that he came to give his life as a ransom for many, and that he's given that message to the hearts of his people so that they might proclaim him to the ends of the earth, if that's the priority in what Jesus is doing, then it should show up in our giving. It should lend focus to how we're giving. And if you believe, Christian, that the local church is God's solution to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth, then I would argue that your giving needs to begin with a focus 
on the needs and the ministry of your own local church. Give first to your own church family. I think we see hints of this in Acts 2 and Acts 4, when you have this fledgling church in Jerusalem trying to make sense of their new lives in Christ. And they're beginning to bring their things together so that they might meet the needs of their fellow Christians, so that they might give to those who have a need, so that they might proclaim the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is making an argument to the Corinthians about why it's not wrong for those who preach the gospel to make their living from the gospel. And in the, in the crescendo of his argument, he says this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If we have sown spiritual things among you, if we have labored to preach the gospel to you, is it too much to ask that we would reap material things from you? Aren't we like an ox that's able to eat the grain that he treads? So when you focus your giving first on your, on your church family, you ensure that your local church, the one that you've committed to, the one that you're a part of, your family is committed to completing the task that Jesus gave us and resourced to do it. You ensure that the building itself is ready to host all the evangelism and all the discipling that will happen throughout the week. You make that church building a visible reminder in the neighborhood, in the city, that Christians exist, that people exist who love this God and treasure him above all else. You do that by focusing first on your church family. And you ensure that the church family has the resources it needs to disciple one another to follow Jesus. You ensure that the church staff is ready to preach and teach and counsel and disciple and shepherd according to God's word. And you ensure that the church's commitment to the evangelizing of this city and cities all around the world is attended to with the urgency that it deserves. So in the point of focus, give first to your own church, but then pray. How else might God be leading you to give to the work of the gospel, even beyond your local church? Where could you as an individual or you as a couple or you as a family lean into some personal need that the Spirit leads you to, some need or some opportunity? Pray that God would lead you in that. Plan, focus, Third, know. If you want to be strategic in your giving, then know who you're giving to. Initiate a relationship with those you're giving to as much as it is possible. Know them. We're striving for relationships. We want to know the workers who are laboring for the gospel. We want to know that they're encouraged and held accountable and have what they need to do the ministry that God has called them to. So reach out. Get to know them. Bear their burdens. Pray for them regularly. And as a start, you might begin with our own missionary family, the 30 or 35 missionary households that we support as a church. You might spend some time getting to know them. Pick a few and get, sign up for their monthly newsletters. When we host lunches, come to those lunches. Get to know the missionaries that we're supporting as a church family. We have a missions trip to go visit with one of our missionaries serving in the Middle East. Consider going and spending time with them and understanding their ministry first 
hand. Plan, focus, know, and finally, enjoy. Think about the privilege that God has given us to engage and partner with the work of the gospel all around the world. God has given you the ability to participate. Because of your giving, that church will be planted. That woman will treasure Jesus. That village will be transformed. That people group will worship before the throne because you've been able to partner with the work of the gospel that's happening all around the world. Just think of the Philippians' joy knowing that they had a hand in planting the churches in Corinth and Thessalonica. And they met Paul's needs so that he could proclaim the gospel to all of Caesar's household so that when he concludes his letter, he's also greeting them from members of Caesar's own household. The Philippians helped to do that. And they have great joy as they think about that first church in Jerusalem, stabilized and strengthened by their own sacrificial giving to the church there. I'm attending the the Sunday school class that's moving through books of the Bible. Right now it's in Acts. Before that it was in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And a few weeks ago we read 3rd John together, and John in that letter encourages the church to send a few faithful co-workers out and to send them out in a manner worthy of God. He says this, 1st John 3, verse 7. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, nothing from non-Christians, Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. John holds up this vision for the church that your support of these brothers in a manner worthy of God means that you yourselves are fellow workers in the work that's happening there. This is our motivation for gospel partnerships. We fellow, we're fellow workers for the truth, reaping an eternal harvest. And that brings us to Paul's second point in verses 17 to 18. Give to delight God's heart. Paul wants to be crystal clear. I'm not thanking you to prompt you to give more. It's not my intention. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I don't seek the gift. I honestly seek your well-being the fruit, the outcome that increases and abounds to your credit. Paul wants the Philippians to experience the spiritual fruit and reward of their gospel generosity. That's his goal. When they gave him rent and grocery money, that made an eternal investment that will accrue interest. It does not evaporate. It doesn't go away. It will have a return on investment. That financial gift will be there. They are storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. Now Paul is commending the Philippians for acting like Christians, right? God's grace has made them generous and their generosity has an abounding eternal outcome and reward. And it's that way, it has a reward because God is pleased with them. Look at verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Paul is saying, this is not so that you send me more. I have everything that I need. I'm well supplied because of the, uh, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. I've got everything I need. And the gifts that you sent are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
from the moment Noah steps off the ark and delivers a burnt offering, from that point forward, those offerings began to send up a worshipful, worshipful fragrance to God. God delights in the grateful, joyful, thankful worship of his people that he's redeemed to worship him. And Paul tells the Philippians that when we joyfully and thankfully and gratefully give to gospel work, it's a delightful fragrance to God. He's receiving the longing of his heart, which is the worship of his people. And that's what we're doing as we're giving. Giving delights God's heart, so give worshipfully. Connect your giving to worship. So how much should you give? The Old Testament tithe amounted to 10 to 20% of a family's income. But the Old Testament tithe is no longer an obligation that the church must fulfill. Instead, as we look at the call to the church, it's a call to generosity. Generosity toward those who make their living preaching the gospel faithfully. Generosity towards church planting. Generosity towards those who have real need. And there's freedom here. Our motivation is eternity. That's what should grip our hearts and motivate us to be generous. The worshipful giving of God's people delights his heart. And this isn't about amount so much as it's about proportion. In Mark 12, we read of Jesus sitting in the temple and he's looking at the treasury box. He's sitting opposite the treasury box. And people come into the temple and they leave offerings in the treasury box. And Jesus sees a widow come in. And the widow puts something in the treasury box. And it's about a day's wage for a, a laborer. And here's what Jesus says to the disciples. Mark 12, 43. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Jesus does new math, and he says, the widow, though she's put in less, has put in more. How's, how can that be? Verse 44, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And then here's Paul to wealthy Christians, 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Right? If you have means, Paul says, don't place your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And friend, if you're here this morning and you, you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, don't put your hope in something in creation. Anything that money can buy, anything that's outside of God, don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but in God. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you see how rich or poor Christians 
are leveled at the cross. And no matter how much we have to give, it's about proportion. Whether rich or poor, you have an opportunity to delight God's heart. Whether you're the poor widow who puts a day's wage in the treasury box, or a very successful Christian like Lydia, who gives not to gain for herself, but she gives to a good foundation for the future so that she may take hold of that which is truly life. When our hearts are gripped and persuaded and convinced of eternal truths, then we give freely toward that future foundation. Now we spoke about planned giving. There's also a place for spontaneous giving. To be led by the Holy Spirit in the moment to give gratefully in response to who God is and what He's done. To look at Him and to see Him for all His might and majesty and mercy and to be moved to worship. And Paul is saying giving is one aspect of that worship. It's a statement acknowledging that we are most satisfied with God. Whatever that money could buy in creation, take it. We are satisfied in God alone. He's worth more than creation. All we have comes from Him, and we see His beauty and majesty and love, and we are moved to respond. Giving is a fragrant, pleasing act of worship. Here's the third point, verses 19 and 20. Give to declare God's faithfulness. Giving is a declaration that God is enough, that He is faithful. Paul ends with a reminder of God's committed love toward us. Look at verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Our giving is an opportunity to declare God is faithful. God is enough. God is trustworthy and dependable. When we forego an opportunity in order to give, or when we give in a way that makes us somewhat vulnerable, or when we give as a glad act of worship, God commits in those moments to supply every need we may have. And how does He vouch for that? He vouches for that. The promise is grounded in the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, He's not promising a vending machine. This isn't a formula where we give and God commits to give us back more than we, we even gave. This is the lie that every preacher of the prosperity gospel peddles. They promise financial prosperity in this life in exchange for generosity. But we aren't promised a life of prosperity and ease and comfort and financial well-being. We follow Jesus who had no place to lay his head. Jesus who calls his people to follow him in a life of self-denying, cross-carrying love. We learn from Paul, who found contentment in all seasons, great abundance and great need. And we remember the example of Christians, like those held up in Hebrews chapter 11. Christians who were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Other Christians who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. 
of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered about in deserts and mountains, in dens and in caves. These are faithful Christians. I'd like to see the prosperity gospel preacher preach that. These are the faithful ones. These Christians all died in faith. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were making it clear that they were seeking a homeland, a land where a righteous king will reign forever. That's their hope. Consider the riches of Christ's glory. What does Paul mean then? What does he mean by saying, I will supply every need or God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus? What does he mean? Who laid the foundations of the earth? In whom does the fullness of God dwell? Through whom were all things created? Who upholds all the universe by his power? Who is the great high priest, holy, unstained, and exalted in the heavens? Who is it who's made purification for sins? Who by one single sacrifice has offered for all time those who are being sanctified? Who is it who has secured an eternal redemption? Who is the way, the truth, and the life? Who is it who is seated at the right hand of the Father? Who is the great shepherd of the sheep? Who is the head of the church? Who is the firstborn from the dead? Who is it who sent his spirit to live in his people? Who's the one who has authority in heaven and on earth? Whose throne is it? that will last from everlasting to everlasting. To whom belongs the glory forever and ever? It's Jesus. These are the riches of the glory that are in Christ Jesus. And Christian, you are united to Christ by faith. Your life and your future are tied up with his life and his future. When we, the church, give sacrificially, we are declaring God's faithfulness, that we trust him, that we depend on him. We declare that we will, in due time, reap a glorious harvest according to the glory and majesty and splendor and magnificence of Christ's riches. John Newton said, the time is short, eternity is at the door. The Lord himself is waiting to be gracious to you, waiting with promises and pardons in his hands. Giving declares God's faithfulness, so give cheerfully. Here's 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. When we're tempted to be sparing in our generosity toward the gospel, we're uncertain that we'll have all that we need. We're not positive that we won't lack something. Or we're tempted to believe that giving to this 
gospel cause will return less joy and satisfaction to us than something else in creation. But God commits to meet our needs out of the riches of Christ's glory. If we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully. So give cheerfully. Give cheerfully. God can make his grace abound. We may experience need in this life, but only in this life. Our eternal needs have been met abundantly in Christ. By his grace, we can abound in seasons of want or seasons of plenty. Now, imagine a church family with me. This time, or imagine a family with me, and this time it's a church family. Collected from all types of backgrounds, old and young, rich and poor. They even speak different languages. They are gathered together because they have the same certain hope. Their hearts long for an eternal homeland, and their hearts are gripped by this everlasting city. Their king lives there, and their king has promised them eternal life. He did that by laying down his life as a shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But he rose from the dead. And he defeated all their enemies. And now he is preparing a home for them there in his father's house. And it's a place of majesty and glory. There's no weeping there. There's certainly no place for sin there. Righteousness reigns in that eternal homeland. And they long for this city and it grips their hearts. But they also realize that they have a home now. A land that their king cares about. And so they seek to bring him glory now. They care for their homes and they labor faithfully at their jobs and they raise their children and they disciple one another to treasure God. And they share with their neighbors the hope they have in Christ and they invite them to come to this eternal homeland. You see, their present home is not meaningless. It is for them to enjoy and for them to care for. But at the same time, they know this present home is temporary. And so they work to remain gripped by their eternal home. And therefore, they let their spending and their saving and their investing be gripped by the eternal riches that are theirs secure in Christ. And this creates a sweeping generosity in the church a glad-hearted enjoyment of this present home and a razor-focused approach to all they do. This family is generous and joyful, strategic and worshipful because God has given them Christ. And if he's given them Christ, then he's given them everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for the hope you deliver to every moment of our lives. Abundance and need. And I pray for a greater understanding of the eternal riches that are ours because of what you've accomplished. And I pray for those here this morning as they process your word. I pray that you would strengthen them by it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would cause your word to reverberate in our hearts, even now as we stand and sing. Amen. Amen. Please stand.